Welcome to Once and Future Authors, Changing Lives One Book at a Time. I'm Stephanie Larkin, an author, independent publisher, and book coach. And each week we will be discussing processes and strategies to get your book finished and published and meet authors and publishing experts to tap into their experiences and expertise. There is one book out there that can change your life, and that is the book you write. So welcome aboard. This podcast is produced by Red Penguin Books, an independent publishing company working with authors of all genres. Whether you have a manuscript all ready to go, a book still stuck in your head, or perhaps even hundreds of handwritten sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer, visit redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephanie, and I'm so delighted to be joined today by author Mark Torres, the author of Long Island Migrant Labor Camps, Dust for Blood. Well, that's a heck of a title. Mark, thanks so much for joining me. It's wonderful to be back on the show, Stephanie. Absolutely. Last time you were here, you were with Adeline, a fiction book. Now, unfortunately, this is more distressing, and it's not fiction. Yes, yes. It's my first foray into uh, nonfiction historical work. Um, couldn't have chosen a, a more important topic to write. Uh, the research was incredible, and it's... Uh, it's all a true story. That's the most terrifying part, yes. that it's all a true story. <clears throat> How did you get involved in this story? Well, I first learned of the labor camps when I wrote my first book, A Stirring in the North Fork, and I actually incorporated one of the camps into that book with a fictional setting. I always knew I wanted to come back to it, and here, um, five years later, I uh, realized now it's the time. And what I found many things that were shocking. The first and foremost was that it was never written about before. Wow. How did you find out about it even when you were doing a stirring in the North Fork? Um, just basic newspaper articles. I kind of learned. I was looking for some kind of fi uh, something to add to the stories in a fictional setting for a character. And, you know, I realized that it was kind of a side attachment to the book, but I knew there would be much more there. What I didn't know was that it was never been written about in a comprehensive format. And really, you know, other than newspaper articles and extensive research that I had to go, go through to find it, uh, other than that, nothing really was too public about the camps. Well, I'm sure they tried to keep it out of the public eye. Yeah, it's certainly a shameful legacy, not something that the, the you know, certainly Suffolk County is proud of. It's, it's a dark, deep history. And again, probably for those reasons, it was somewhat suppressed. Right. Um, and that kind of led to the challenge of researching. Now, what are we talking about with these labor camps? Are we talking about the 1700s, the 1800s? Uh, no, the, actually, it's 20th century. That's, that's the true shocking <laughs> part. All of this, the first camp I was... I found in 1943 in Peconic, New York, in wow. the North Fork. Uh, and then, you know, 1958, there were 134 camps at the time. 1958? Yes. And, and that was the peak period of the, uh, of the era that I cover in the book. And, you know, those are registered camps. There were likely others that were unregistered because, right. you know, it was all surrounded around the potato, farm, potato industry. Right. And at one point, in Nassau, uh, Suffolk County was the leader in the nation. In potato production, so there was definitely a lot of more than Idaho. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of lot of production and a lot of demand for labor that went with it. Okay, so we had all these potatoes, and where were they getting these laborers? And, and tell us a little bit about it. Well, the first four camps were government, U.S. government sponsored. Uh, the U.S. government con contracted with the islands of Jamaica and Barbados and brought in farm workers, approximately 400 farm workers from those islands. They took the, the plane ride to New Orleans and a long train ride to Long Island. The, the U.S. government picked the tab up, $100 per, uh, per man for the transportation fees. And these, these camps probably were in existence for three to four years. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it, it almost exclusively shifted to workers from Mexico, Puerto Rico, and then almost exclusively to black workers from the U.S. southern states. 
Okay, so they were picking up these workers from the islands, Mexico, and then the south, and bringing them here. Yes, and and picking up. Well, they were uh, and picking up is an interesting term because the way it worked was they were crew leaders, sometimes called crew chiefs, and they would contract with the local farmers who owned the camps. They would rent the camps from the farmers, and then they would recruit the workers. They would go down south. They would go to other places. In some cases, they would go to inner cities looking for transients, homeless people prone to alcoholism. Sometimes they took them with false promises, sometimes by force, a term known as Shanghai. Wow. They would just grab them, maybe drunk, passed out in the corner, put in the van. Seriously? Yeah, it was that kind of, that ruthlessness that went on, sure. Now, what was life like on these camps? Uh, the camps are always in poor to terrible conditions. Uh, the the constant econo economic exploitation, the, all the, the crew leaders ran every facet from the pay to the living quarters and, and and every aspect of the workers' lives. The, and the farmers separated themselves, outsourced all responsibility for the workers to the crew leaders, and just used the workers as a pool of labor to pick the crops. Uh, and the conditions at the camps were always terrible, and the exploitation uh, was rampant. There was, uh, in one case, a woman had complained in Riverhead in 1960 that Social Security was coming out of her check, the taxes, and she never even had a Social Security number. You know, it was that kind of fraudulent activity that was going on repeatedly and widespread. Right. And, you know, the, the exploitation and terrible conditions of the camps are documented in the book. And eventually it, let, it had, you know, bad dealings. It led to a lot of crime, violence, poor health and safety, and certainly death. There was many cases of death reported at the camps. Right. Now, did, did these people who were brought in have an end date? You said something about three to four years. Did they, they have like a term? Yeah. Or? No, they, they, it, generally it was seasonal. Um, okay. You know, Potatoes from August August through November was okay. the height of the potato season. However, on Long Island, there were many other crops, cauliflower, lima beans, strawberries. So probably eight to nine months out of the year was the season where workers were always in high demand. So they would, and many of the workers would come and they would repeatedly come back. Uh, or they would follow along in the migrant stream. They would go upstate to pick apples. They would go back down to Florida and work their way back up the East Coast migrant stream. Wow. So it was kind of a constant loop of, of work workers coming. Right. Now, how did you do all this research if there was not yeah. much written? Well, I, I you know, I, I dug down and realized this is too important. And the more, the more I learned of the history, the greater my obligation grew to tell the story. I looked at over 300 newspaper articles. I reviewed uh, several rare documentaries. One of them, Harvest of Shame, 1960, by Edward R. Murrow. Um, I did some interviews from people within the industry, uh, family members of secondhand industries. Really? You were able to do that? Yes. And I actually, and I also sent a very large information request to the Suffolk County Department of Health, who provided over a thousand pages and documents. Sadly, though, all those records were from 1980 to present. Mm. And primarily because by law, they don't have to keep the records past seven years. And when they moved from Riverhead to Hapog, probably 10, 15 years ago, a lot of the records were destroyed. So a lot of these history was truly lost, but still I was able to cover well over 100 camps in the, in the book as an index, as well as throughout the story that has more complete information on, on, the, on the camps. This is quite an intensive book. It's a good thing that you have your background. Tell yes. us a little bit about your background that well, helps with all this research. Oh, certainly. I'm a labor law attorney. I represent Teamsters Local 810. I've done that for more than 12 years now. Yeah. Um, you know, I love representing and looking out for people, working for people and their families. Uh, so this came right within my wheelhouse. Yes. <laughs> now, we, I never had the occasion to represent farm workers. And, and, and there's, a, there's a sadness to that. Farm workers, by law, federal law, are not included in the National Labor Relations Act. So they don't... They don't have, they didn't have it then, they still don't have it now, 
federal labor law protections, and that left them extremely vulnerable. Uh, so I certainly... They still don't have... They still don't. They have to rely on any state laws. New York just passed one in 2019, which is still being challenged, and it's kind of fledgling. California in 1971 passed a labor law, but that took many years as well. So all the farm states in the middle of the country are not covered by federal labor it, laws? They would have to be... No, no federal labor laws. It would have to be any state laws they'd rely upon. And sadly, the agricultural, agricultural industry is so powerful that they're going to have heavy influence on what or if any laws are, are enacted. And you said New York State just passed a law. You said 2019, they passed a law that allows workers the ability to join labor unions and challenge for um, certain working conditions. But even that is, is being challenged by the farm workers. Oh, my uh, gosh. That's, yeah, so, so that's like the least we could do. Yeah, I agree. And, and they've decimated now with the COVID. You think of modern times. And right, right. there's still rampant discrimination, lack of pay. And um, a lot of the problems always stem from not being paid while there's downtime, no work. Right. And it, in the book, it covers this extensively where... If it's raining, poor seasons, or if a machinery breaks down in the processing potato shed, the workers would have to remain there on site while the machines are being repaired. It's no fault of their own, but they're not getting paid. So while they're not getting paid, they're still incurring the debt of living at the camps, food, alcohol, everything right. sold at the camps at higher inflated rates. And it was just a cycle of perpetual debt that plagued them and still does. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea that even to this day... Farm workers are not protected. Yeah, for federal law, they, they're not protected. There's been a lot of lot of lobbying. Um, hopefully, the new administration will take up some action to help assist that. And, and you know, I think of Edward Amaro, 1960, he, who aired that documentary on Thanksgiving Day to shame the nation, to say this, these people put food on our tables and they're treated the worst, and they still are. And I and I recognize that. It really hit home with me as a labor attorney who represents workers who fights for conditions and raises and and better terms of employment. And these poor workers have nothing or little little access to that. So I look at them now as my brothers and sisters in labor, both then and now. Right, and I right. certainly want to, you know, avail myself to uh, offer pro bono services when possible. Right, right. What is the name of this documentary? Harvest of Shame. Harvest Edward of Shame. Edward R. Murrow, CBS News. There was another documentary that I relied upon in 1968 called What Harvest for the Reaper. That was a rare, um, rare documentary. It took me a while to find. And what, what, what that did, it, it exposed the Kutchog Labor Camp, the largest camp known in New York State. It could accommodate up to 300 people. It had at one point a, sco a school for migrant children, a, a daycare center, quite large camp. And not only did it describe the conditions of the camp, but it explained the economic exploitation in full detail. And that right. really gave me a great deal of research and, and to, to be able to explain that in the book. And, and the book doesn't just list the camps, talks about the conditions. It goes into the effects of the migrant workers, psychological impacts. They're always in isolation and boredom and, and you know, out, out of touch of society because most, you know, they're outsiders. So most people didn't want anything to do with them. Their camps were remote and, you know, always in, in, in quiet, abandoned areas. It discusses the health and safety. Um, and it certainly discusses the crime and violence, which are always rampant, not only at the camps, but throughout the camps. And that placed a heavy burden on the first responders and the community itself. And, of course, the death, the death that occurred at the camps. In 1959 in Riverhead, there was eight deaths in 11 days. Wow. I, I think of one, uh, Dilcia Trent, 22-year-old mother, a wife of a migrant worker. She had three children, all under the age of three, her infant child. They're all in the bed. It's a cold January day. She's living in a rundown shack in Riverhead. She lights a match uh, to light the kerosene heater. The match falls on the rug, which is saturated with kerosene, so it goes up. She, she attempts to roll up the rug to bring it to another room. She knocks down the kerosene heater. Oh, no. She picks it up, gets kerosene on her clothing, and becomes, in effect, a human torch. 
She runs out in agony to roll around in the mud to douse the flames. Within seconds, the place goes up. The three children perish. She had 80% burns on her body and died a week later. And but for some random news, newspaper articles in 1959, this woman was forgotten. And I made a, 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 a pledge to myself to add the names of those victims in the book and all of these incidents, the ones I found, because uh, they, they deserve better. And, and, and to honor them, is, I really felt in touch with them on that. Wow, that's, that's, that's so beautiful for you to want yeah. to do that, not just to expose what's gone on. You know, they say those that don't, don't understand history yes. are destined to repeat it. Yes. What's going on now on Long Island? Well, there's been a lot of change. Um, the, the, the potato production went down. Uh, machinery was being implemented much more by the 70s, 80s. And that led to less need for manpower and less labor camps. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually, there was also a sharp rise in land values, as we all know, Suffolk right. County's land values. And mind you, this is on both forks, yes. as well as Riverhead, Shelter Island. I even found a camp on Fisher's Island, which really? is closer to Connecticut, but part of New York State. And, you know, the... the uh, at one point in 1971, there were 68,000 farms in Suffolk County. One third of them were owned by prospectors. They eventually sold them to what would become the modern-day vineyard owners. Okay. I spoke to, uh, to Louisa Hargraves, the first vineyard owner on the North Fork of Long Island. She bought her, her land off a prospector who bought that land off a potato farmer. Gotcha. So it was a natural transition to that. Now, people often ask, are the conditions the same? I have not done any work contemporary beyond 2000, gotcha. generally. I really cover that, that one period. But what I do know is that it, working in a vineyard is more, more artisanal than certainly potato farming. Yes, yes. You have to know how to cure the vines, and there's big money involved. So uh, the workers could command higher, higher wages. Uh, also, familiarity with the vineyard owners. So I, I would hope and like to believe there's better conditions there, um, but I have not researched that element. Gotcha. And, but I, my hopes are that's the case. Yeah, well, like you said, they can command higher salaries because they're skilled. Yes, it's not easy to cure those vines. And it's very labor-intensive still, nonetheless, yeah. Yeah, in vineyards. absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Are these types of uh, horrific conditions still in effect anywhere else in the country, would you know? Or? Well, in many, in some ways different. The, you know, I know in, in Southern Jersey, um, many of the workers today are decimated with COVID. Um, there's been still uh, legislation or proposed legislation prior to the administration turnover that was discriminatory. It would have made things worse in many ways. But what I do know, and just in looking at Long Island as, as a study, is that the industry changed. Now, I wish I could have could be here today to say there was a humanitarian push. There was some kind of widespread public, uh, like that right. happened in California, but that was not the case. That it was, was not the, the case. change in the farming ideology and equipment that led to that change. Um, and, 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 you know, it's just a sad example where industry is more important than human life. And does that occur today? Yes, absolutely, in different formats. Uh, to see widespread, widespread camps like then, I believe they're gone. Those days are gone um, for many reasons, including possibly um, lower income housing more available than there was then. But at one point, you know, these camps dominated the region for, for more than, for about half a century. Wow, that's just crazy. Tell me about the writing behind it, because yes. this is a very different book than your, your last book that I met with you. But I'm kind of picturing, was this uh, harder or easier than, say, your dissertation to become a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 was, it was difficult. And remember, I, I felt the obligation to, to, to get it right and to tell it. Right. So I was driven by that. And, and you, know, uh, you know, the work becomes secondary. You don't realize you're working as hard because you're passionate about sharing the story. Right. I wrote it from the perspective of an investigative journalist. Okay. I realized that people could question. People will question and, sure. and, and have the right to, and I welcome that. Um, every every site, every fact, everything was cited. And there, I leaned on my legal learnings to say, 
don't just make stuff up. Write <laughs> truth, write facts. Um, and, and, and where it was, you know, sort of questionable, I would say this was reported. Things have happened. But with enough widespread public documents, as well as government documents, right, right. I'm confident in fully confident in the research, the accuracy of the book, and, and the writing. And, the, and it kind of just tells the story that I welcome the reader to, to read it, digest it, and draw their own conclusions. My opinion, I share towards the latter of the book, it is a shameful legacy. It, it is where industry was more, more, more powerful than human life. And uh, it's something that, and also the fact that it was never written before was another driving force mm. that I wanted to preserve this for the historical record. Something that future students and, and, and universities can study and share and cite and also inspire future works. Because if we forget our history, then You're we're right. lost as a society. Absolutely. Now, what did you find, oh, a dangerous question, more creatively fulfilling? Writing fiction where you got to, you know, make it all up as you went along, or this which was much more of a research-intensive book? Well, I, I, it's interesting because, you know, even though I'd written two fictional crime novels, they each have historical elements. Yes, in, they do. During the North Fork, I, I mentioned the labor camps in Adeline, my second book, I've written about um, mental health treatment in New York right. State. So, you know, it's, it's through a fictional still background. Research, of, yes. Yeah, and I realized that I enjoy that teaching element. That, of course, I'm entertaining. Uh, you write a story, you want to be a storyteller, but you want to teach. Right. Here, I found true inspiration and satisfaction that it was a teaching moment. And when I hold, and I've held repeated events and will continue to. Uh, for as long as anyone will listen on this topic. Um, people who born and raised on Long Island, uh, quite elderly, tell me they never knew about this. Shocked. They may have heard whispers. It may have been rural folklore, but it was all true. And now, for the first time, this book is captured in, in a history, and I want to have that preserved. And, and that's, yeah. that's important to me, and I feel that that Absolutely. legacy is... Is, is everlasting. No, I'm glad you said that because you know there is there is something fun about being able to world build and do whatever you want in a in a fictional yeah. setting, but here you're actually shining a light yeah. on an, a problem, a problem that we don't even know about, and giving light to those people. Yes. You know that that woman you just described yeah. and her children, yeah. who, like you said, would have been forgotten. That's right. All of those those souls are looking down and saying, "There's there's that book." Yeah. You know, I, I, one, of the first, one of the first tragedies I found in 1950 in Bridgehampton, a family of four, a, a mother, father, and two infants, they were living in a chicken coop in Bridgehampton. And we all know the Bridgehampton, and we know the South Fork and the affluence today. They were living in a chicken coop. So both parents were working in the fields, and a fire broke out, and the two children perished. Oh. I couldn't locate those names. And from that point forward, I said, I'm going to work my darndest to get those names of those who, who did perish and, and share that. One good thing that came from that in tragic incident was that the Bridgehampton Child Care Center was created. And that still is in existence today, doing wonderful work for, for the community that needs help. Um, so, you know, it, it, there were many acts of, of, of advocacy. Uh, I think of uh, Arthur Bryant, a reverend in Greenport, who testified before Congress in 1969. He spoke out on TV and radio programs. And because of his efforts, he was receiving death threats. And, and, you know, uh, Mary Chase Stone, a woman who left a, an affluent life in New England to reside in Riverhead and, and look out for the migrant workers. She formed a nonprofit called Long Island Volunteers. She helped thousands of migrant workers. She, they, they had a program teaching them different trades to get out of the migrant stream from carpentry and construction um, and just mentoring and just, you know, just kind of um, having a place of belonging for some of these workers. And that was important because Riverhead, towards the, towards the end of the 1960s, really became a major hub. And, and a lot of the migrants who left the stream res resided in, in Riverhead. And that was the largest eastern city 
um, you know, by New York standards, is small, but it's a, it's the largest city that far out. And you know that that be, and at the, also at the time there was no housing code, so a lot of the workers who did settle there could put up any any shack construction and call it a home, and that led to tragic incidents like we talked about in yes, 1959 yes. and others, um, and just a repeated cycle of, of 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 death, crime, violence, and you know sad and loneliness. For other people who might want to write nonfiction like this, somebody who's sitting and saying, you know, I, either I have, I've discovered an issue that I want to bring a light to, or even I want to do this and I want to find an issue. What advice would you give them? I would say um, make it your life's work. Treat it as the most important thing you can do because once you find that, that no one else have, uh, has, you, you really have a responsibility now to the world. Oh. Yes. And I think that if I didn't write this, you know, I, I don't, I can't think of anyone else who would have. I know there's one reporter out east, Steve Wick, who's done a lot of great work, and he's busy in his own right doing his work. I don't think, I can't think of any other person alive that that is more familiar, keenly aware of this right, information right. than myself, and now the readers who read this book. Right. And that was my, I realized that importance. So I would say to those writers, research it, get it right, and share it with the world. Don't lose the opportunity to share it. That is such a huge responsibility. Yeah. I'm so glad you're embracing it. But you're embracing it not just through the book. You're doing so many talks, and yes. you're getting the word out there, and you've really put on your shoulders you know, the lives of all those people. Yes, yes. And, and again, I, I, in many different formats, so universities, uh, Libraries, historical societies, and universities. I, right. I recently held events at CUNY and Adelphi. I have many more scheduled, and I again, I want this to be shared in many topics, whether it's a book club right. or a classroom. I want everyone to exactly. know this history and and talk about it. One, one of the things I've, I've found is that many of the workers, many of the people who may have, who during my research, I, I was hoping and praying for more people to come out. I could find, I found enough what I found. But now that I've given talks, I've been contacted by people who grew up in the area, have more knowledge, and they've shared things with me. And one is I'm pleased to know that I've got it right based on their firsthand information. Two, they shared other items with me that I didn't know that I partly kind of wish I knew before I wrote in the book, but I share them in the stories. Right. Um, and I'll give you one example. In the Kutchog labor camp, there was a ruthless um, crew leader named Ernest Mitchell. He went by the name of Charlie Sapp. That was his alias. Mitchell was this 400-pound, big, strong man, had a Vicious German, German shepherd named Duke scared the workers, sometimes sick the dog on the workers. Terrible man. He used to beat women, men relentlessly. The, you know, this gentleman, the gentleman who stayed at the camp there, told me that Charlie Sapp at one point went to New York, New York City, Times Square, picked up a homeless, homeless girl, 16 years old, probably some minor, brought her back to the camp and made her a sex slave. Now, I could not verify that but for this person telling me firsthand knowledge of it. I could tell you that Charlie Sapp, Ernest Mitchell, was a notorious character. He was charged with tax evasion, theft, beatings of beating of men and women workers. So it wouldn't it wouldn't be surprising if this was fully true as he related right. to me. And that was the kind of ruthlessness and, and viciousness that was going on. Oh my God, that's horrible. Yeah. So once somebody does find that which they are so passionate about that they want to be an advocate for, yeah. how did you did you I'm just thinking, you know, dissertation-wise. How do you do your research? Do you use index cards? Yeah, yes. Are you, like, going to libraries? What what worked for you? Well, a lot of my research was digital. Uh, a lot of this research was done during the era of COVID. You know, for all the bad things, COVID, I, I was I could say I was successfully able to work from home, and I was blessed with that opportunity. And, and, and that allowed me to work on this as well. And a lot of it was digital. I would, I would arrange format... Um, Format newspaper articles, hundreds of articles, right, right. In, in whether it's chronological, location, um, or even 
style, whether it's advocacy or the camps. And I kind of would create these folders to kind of apportion it, everything in that order. And that helped me because keeping organization has always been a challenge. And you have all these things flying in and you want to you tell it quite, uh, chronologically. So, I mean, I would say that, you know, and being able to work from home really accelerated my research and writing this project. Right. This book took a little over a year to write. Without that, it probably could have doubled that time. Right, right. So it really was opportunistic. But you certainly have to be super organized if you're going to do something yes. this research heavy. Yes. And I'll tell you, the one, if I want to say downside, is now I, I do like this genre. I would like to write more work like this. But now finding something that's never been written about is somewhat spoiling as a historian and author. You know, what's the next topic that hasn't been done? I don't think I'm going to be as, as fortunate from a storytelling way to find that, but I could certainly find little, little no, lesser known topics and kind of take my own spin on it. I, all of my work, I try to write it from the worker's perspective, the human perspective, um, and, and that's kind of my, my style with, with these historical projects, and I'll continue with that. Was there any piece of research, a person that you wish you could have met, um, an article that was just out of reach? Was there anything that? Um, when I started this journey, I learned of this, this Arthur Bryant. Um, an amazing, um, uh, this, this small um, reverend, but a powerful icon, such a strong-willed, intelligent man. I saw him in videos. I said, oh, I want to meet this guy, meet this guy. And I was with my wife. We were trying, we were trying. We eventually found out that he passed on at oh. 51 years old. Oh, my gosh. So we thought, we thought he's still alive. Here he is dead. So I, I found that he passed on. My wife actually shed a tear. We were, we were quite emotional about it. So right, let me build on that. Eventually, I found the website where it was a find the grave. And... I was able to see that his that someone his, that had his last name, a woman, had written about him. She said something about her father. It was his daughter. I was able to connect with his daughter, wow. and he has four daughters. Now we're, we've spoken extensively. They shared information with me. They are they're all different parts of the country: South Carolina, Massachusetts, all around. And they're thrilled that I've written about in part about their father's efforts and this story. Um, we've become closely connected in many ways. I feel like I know the man, and you know, and and I wish I I wish he was around yes. to have to have spoken with him and, and and of course there's always other you know one of the things I've always looked for particularly with photographs I, I always said what's my next unicorn I have to get you know rare photographs from this camp that camp and I was able to find many were that you? really was, were hard to find but I was really blessed to find them and incorporate them in the book so wow. that was that was the journey the photographs is to, to supplement the story so people want to see you know and I knew that today there's one one structure of a camp left in Riverhead that, that I've found uh, other than that they're all gone so I wanted to raise the, in the conscious mind of the readers that these camps dominated the region once and picture them through this writing that they were around and, and, and imagine what they were like and how they, people who lived there you know, suffered under them. Right. So now you're looking for that next great story. Yeah. How, how do you even begin to find that? Or do you just hope that it manifests and finds you? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I would be naive to say I don't have ideas and leads. Okay. And, and, uh, but I would also say I'm quite naive because when I do find something, I jump, I'm ready. Then the next day I'm like, oh, I don't know. You know, and, and for many reasons. One is, is it going to be, is it something that, that the public wants and needs to hear? But is, and also, is it something that I can find enough research to qualify for that? You know, right, right. there was, and I'm blessed to have been able to find, you know, modern resources with the internet and, and connections and people you eventually talk to. Um, I was blessed with that, and I'm eternally grateful because without that, and also the reporters, I think of Harvey Aronson and Les Payne, two reporters from Newsday, um, who wrote extensively about it. Les Payne himself, he passed on some years ago. He spent the week undercover at one of the camps in Riverhead. He wrote a fabulous five-piece wow. five series on that. And he explained the, the sufferings at the camp and also the alcohol abuse. He explained that wine is the lifeblood of the migrant worker. And wine was often used to control the workforce. If, if, they were, if workers were upset and cheated and frustrated, 
with Krulita would simply give him a bottle of wine, charge him later for it, double the amount, but he would say, sleep it off, we'll talk tomorrow. And that just furthered his cycle of dependency and fogginess right, that, right. that they were under. So it was just um, really interesting. Any, anything that totally shocked you that you didn't even see coming? I, I, you know, I, initially, each story shocked me. The, yeah. the, I guess the constant theme was that it was never written about was the eternal shock. Um, you know, places out in Southhold and, and the North Fork, you know, you can learn where the, the first oak tree was planted 300 years ago, and you can learn about the early settlers, and that this was never written, and this is 20th century history. Yeah. That's the recurring That's shock. That's the thing that shocks me, is that it's 20th century. Yeah. That's just amazing. Yes. Well, if you want to be shocked, Long Island migrant labor camps dust for blood happened right here in our own backyard, possibly even in your lifetime. So definitely grab a copy. I, I'm just shocked that this is so recent, but let's not let it happen again. Thank you so much for joining us and good luck with the new one. Thank you, my pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us for Once in Future Authors. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Reviews help other interested listeners to find the show, so your review could launch new books every day. Thanks again for joining us, and happy writing!